0: I am Kenuff, or at least that's what the, the shirt says on Ken, not our Ken, but the Ken and the Barbie movie, if any of you have seen that. I have to admit, I, I, I did actually enjoy the movie. I'm not saying it was a perfect movie, far from it, but uh, I, I, it did have some very interesting points. You know, the, the movie portrays the imaginary world of Barbie, a world dominated by women. It's really the, the domination, is, it's kind of an inversion of all the worst parts of a male-dominated society. So one thing that I found very helpful in the movie was the chance to think about what it would be like for me to be Ken. Just hear me out. It's a world full of Ken's. In Barbie land, that's the world of Barbie in the movie, Ken is basically just an accessory. He, he only has a great day if Barbie looks at him. And in one interchange with Barbie, he, t- he says he's, he's not just Ken. He's always Barbie and Ken. And, and that's, that's what would be true of little girls playing with a Ken doll. Right? So Ken's existence is completely defined in relation to Barbie. And, and so I do think that women at times can feel that way, can feel like they're, they only matter in relation to a man. So I, I just think it's, the movie gives men a chance to think about what it would be like to feel that way. Now, the movie offers absolutely no solution to either a male-dominated or female-dominated society. And really, I think that the, the power play between Ken and Barbie and really between men and women in the movie is the MacGuffin, if you're familiar with that term. It, it's the thing that it, it's not really what the movie's about, but it kind of moves it along. The movie was really about identity and purpose in life. So Barbie's trying to figure out what life is really about. And who she really is. She didn't just want to be that that conventional role that she was given as this doll. And she says, I want to do the imagining, not be the idea. I want to be part, the part of the people that make meaning, not the thing that is made. So she wanted to be human. I'll try not to ruin too much of the movie if you want to watch it. But to me, the most, most interesting part of the movie was when she goes to the creator, her creator, Ruth Handler, or the ghost of her creator, Ruth Handler, and she asks for permission to become human. And Ruth tells her, you don't need my permission. And Barbie responds, you know, but you're the creator. You know, don't you control me? And Ruth says, I don't control you any more than I could control my daughter. So Barbie comes to understand that being human is really just something you discover that you are. And so then at that point, Ruth takes Barbie by the hands and tells, and, and tells her to close her eyes. And then she says, now feel. So, I guess the essence of humanity is feeling. That, that, that fits, right, with our, our culture. We move beyond the Cartesian, I think, therefore I am, to I feel, therefore I am. So, that brings us back really to that shirt that Ken's wearing at the end of this, the movie. I am knuff. You know, what it means is that our identity and purpose are self-determined. So, we're not defined in relation to someone else. We're enough. We create meaning. We determine our own identity for ourselves. Now, How do we respond to that kind of an idea as a Christian? I mean, there's plenty we could bash about the movie, like the fact that there's not a single good role, male role in the, the movie, save maybe Alan, maybe. So, or we could, we could talk about the way that there's some motherhood bashing at the very beginning of the movie in the vein of 2001 A Space Odyssey, somehow. I haven't seen that yet, but I think the key in order to respond to Barbie, or really to to respond to the kind of thinking that's reflected in a movie like Barbie, the key is to understand our identity, our true identity. Are we really enough? Are we really enough? Is our our identity self-determined, or is it actually defined in relation to someone else? If we're Christians, then we want to keep the Christ in Christian. We want to see our identity in light of him. So at Christmas time, you know, there are some Christians who kind of get all hyped up about keeping the Christ in Christmas. Well, you know what? If we keep the Christ in Christian, then we can handle, we can, I know that we will approach things like Christmas and Barbie movies and anything else the way that Christ wants us to do. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to think about our identities And how they're found in Christ. And in order to do that, we're going to recall some scripture that we've covered this past year. So we started the year finishing the last part of of Matthew, the last four chapters. And then we took on the first eight chapters of Romans. So we're going to use those portions of scripture as our foundation for understanding our identity in Christ. And we'll begin in Romans. If you wanted to turn to Romans, uh, that's where you could follow along. But we're going to move quickly, uh, so I won't do a lot of stopping. But you can turn there to Romans <clears throat> and follow along. But we'll see three aspects to our identity in Christ. We're going to see our the fact that Christ is our solution, our life, and our Lord. Christ, our solution, our life, and our Lord. So the first thing we want to do, we want to recognize Christ as our solution. And of course, if he's our solution, there has to be a problem that he's the solution for. So Paul summarized our Problem in the first three chapters of this letter to the Christians in Rome. Romans 1.18 states, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Humanity as a whole stands condemned under God's just wrath. And we have no excuse. Paul explains in verses 19 through 23 that God is known by humanity, but we've rejected him. So the truth about God, it's visible. It's out there. It, it's obvious even. The existence and the complexity and vastness of our universe, it actually requires an intentional and powerful being. And, and what else can that be but what we call God? And we're responsible to respond to what can be known about God and creation. The appropriate, necessary response to this knowledge about God is to honor him and give thanks to it. So when humanity sees in creation God's eternal power and divine nature, the proper response is supreme adoration and praise. And we should be thankful, grateful to him for our existence. But think about how humanity's responded. We have not naturally recognized God's greatness or praised him for it or thanked him for the life that we have. Why not? Because we're more enamored with ourselves. And for that sinful response, God has handed us over to the power of our sin. So since we've refused to honor God, he handed us over to the power of our desires. Instead of our desires recognizing and valuing God's glory, we valued ourselves more than anything else. And we pursued our own glory. And so God handed us over to those simple desires. So what's happened now is our desires do the opposite of what they were given to us to do. They should have honored God, but now turned in on themselves that the way that they are turned in on ourselves, they end up producing behavior that dishonors ourselves. And since we refuse to think about God as appropriate for our lives, our intellects focused on ourselves and This intelligence that we have, we now use that to produce behavior that's inappropriate for our lives. And Paul is very clear. This is true of all of us. He says in Romans 3, 9, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So the Jewish people, they weren't an exception to the situation. All of humanity is under the power of sin, under the domination of our perverted desires and intellect. And then Paul uses this string of quotations in chapter 3 there to to demonstrate that every part of everyone is corrupted by this sin. We are totally depraved in our separation from God. So Paul is explaining all of that to show how Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the solution to our problem. There is no way for us to solve our problem on our own. We we stand before God's wrath. We deserve God's wrath. And we can't fix that problem because we're slaves to our own sin. <clears throat> and what that means is that the way that our culture describes humanity, it isn't the truth. You now, what, what movies like Barbie, they're reflecting this idea that we're the only guide that we need for our sense of identity and purpose. We just need ourselves. We're the ones who make meaning for our lives. So our goal in life, you'll hear people talk about, the, the goal is Authenticity. We want to be able to express our authentic self, who we feel we are. And the road to truth about ourselves, that road, it's it's found by following our own thoughts and desires. But Paul's been saying, we're incredibly flawed. The problem is actually our own thoughts and desires. That's what we need to be rescued from. That's what we need a solution for. So the world presents this idea that truth that comes from outside of us that that's that's truth that's or that's not truth but it's just trying to put us in a box we're actually taught to view anyone giving us direction and ironically we're being taught this but anyone giving us direction we're we're, we're kind of supposed to view them like the ceo of Mattel is viewed in that barbie movie is trying to put barbie back in the box you know people that give us direction oh they're just trying to put us in a box fact is we're the box We're our own box. We need to be rescued from ourselves, from our own intellect and desires that have been corrupted. So we are not what we were intended to be. And we're desperately searching for an identity and purpose that has no relation to others. That's based purely on who we feel we are. But understand, when we do that, we're like the moon refusing to reflect the glory of the sun. We instead want to produce a glory it's all our own. But understand what the, the moon's like when that happens. The moon is very dark and inglorious when it faces away from the sun. But when it faces what has a true inherent glory, then it shines brightly in the sky. So that is what God intended for us. To be truly glorious. To have a truly glorious purpose. One that reflects his glory. So the satisfaction and affirmation and sense of completion and joy that we're longing to find in ourselves, it's always going to come up short of what we could have with God. So understand that the solution that Paul's describing in his letter to the Romans, it's, what, it's really what humans have been hardwired to long for. We just, we've rejected how our maker intended us to experience it. The solution that God provides, it's not a box. The problem is, we're unwilling to pay the cost. Submission. You know, we've determined that autonomy is our most prized possession. The ability to choose for ourselves. That value stems from our fallen condition. It's actually the evidence that we're really being directed by our sinful desires and intellect. Christ is the true solution. To our problem? And Paul explains that in this letter. There's a decisive turning point in the letter at chapter 3 and verse 21. Where Paul begins there, he says, but now. He's been talking about all the, the, the bad news that is true of us in our fallen condition, under the power of sin. And then he says, but now. In Romans 118, he said, the wrath of God is revealed. And then he goes on to say, but now the righteousness of God is revealed. So in, in our present state, we are not righteous. We stand condemned by the judge of creation, the only one who has the right to determine if we've lived the way that we ought to. The one who created us and sustains our very existence. Our sinful rebellion means that that God's just condemnation is on us. We're condemned. But in Jesus Christ, God revealed an end time verdict of righteous. And God declares people to be righteous, not because of anything we could achieve for ourselves. Slaves, we're slaves to our sinful hearts and minds, but instead because of what Jesus did for us. So the question is, who benefits from this end-time verdict now? Who's declared righteous? Paul says in verse 22 that this, what he's talking about, is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So on the one hand, that's incredibly inclusive. This is not just for God's old covenant people, the Jewish people went beyond that, it was to all peoples, all nations. But look at how Paul puts it. He doesn't say that this was for people who believed. As though this was simply coming down to a one-time experience at a crisis moment in your life. This is for all who believe in the present tense. See, there's a faith that doesn't last or that doesn't change us. A faith that can be explained by psychologists and sociologists. Faith that believes in a way that actually fits with our sinful desires and intellect. That's not the faith Paul's talking about. This is an ongoing faith that perseveres because it flows out of what Paul described in chapter 8. It flows out of what God has done to free us from our sinful heart and mind. It's a faith that's born by the Holy Spirit that comes out of this effectual call. It's a miraculous work of God that defies any sociological or psychological explanation. So how, how can we be rescued through faith rather than by what we accomplish for ourselves? Paul describes his salvation as a rescue from slavery. He calls it redemption. Next week, we're going to start to look at Exodus. That's where God records his rescue of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And you know, God, the whole situation, everything from Israel's slavery to God's rescue, it was ordained by God to teach us about this salvation. Jesus rescuing us from our slavery to sin. And here's how he did it. God put forward his son publicly at his death to show that he was the real mercy seat. That he was the real atoning sacrifice that God had pointed to at the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was that, that national ritual where just as the ram replaced Isaac on Mount Moriah, there was a sacrificial animal that would replace God's people, that, that it would endure the wrath that they deserved. And then the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies was sprinkled with the blood. And that showed that the sin that it had rightly angered God had been dealt with. The, the penalty had been paid. And the righteous status of that sacrificial animal was granted to the people so that God could be with them. So Jesus, he is the true and final substitute. His righteous life stood in the place of all who believe. The penalty for our sins paid in him, his righteous status is given to us. That is it's a glorious, a gracious exchange, and faith is that point at which the exchange occurs. But understand faith is not an act that we now accomplish something for ourselves. So as we think about faith, when we trust in Christ, that's the turning point where we begin to experience a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But it's not that our faith contributes in any way to our redemption. It's not that Christ did his part, and now it's up to us to apply the benefits of that through our faith. That's not the Old Testament's picture. It's just as the Old Testament pictured on the Day of Atonement. The Israelites didn't do anything to apply the atonement once it was accomplished for them. But Paul does say that Christ's atonement only applies to those who believe. So faith is what distinguishes us as those who are redeemed. Our faith does not redeem us. Jesus did everything to accomplish our redemption, to set us free. We begin to experience that when we first believe. The Old Testament also teaches how this is fair. How can something like this be fair? That's a question that people ask. Well, the Old Testament was leading us to understand that this is the way God's creation works through Adam And through the sacrificial system, as well as through the role of the kings, and even through that prophecy about the suffering servant, they're all showing us that someone can represent others. So those who have failed to live the way that we were created to live, and who deserve to experience eternal punishment, they can have somebody take their place. That substitute, though, must be truly righteous. And and that's not just... Someone who hasn't sinned, but who's lived their life in a way that God approves. That representative, they can substitute their approved life for sinners who are condemned for their life. And that's what Jesus did. His approval, his righteous status is granted to unrighteous people. And then the debt that those unrighteous people owe for their sin and for their release from sin's power, that's paid by his punishment on the cross. In their place. That's how God can be righteous. And still declare ungodly people to be righteous. He can consider them to have Jesus. Truly righteous status. And to be. Their sin to be truly paid. By Jesus sacrifice. So Jesus. Is the representative of everyone. Who believes that he is their representative. Jesus was righteous for them. Jesus paid their punishment. And the question is. Is that true of you? Do you believe that? Even now, you may be hearing from God himself through this good news. Calling you to turn from your, your sinful desires and intellect and to trust in what Jesus did for you. To be reunited, reunited with him, to begin to live in communion with him. So that you, can, you can actually start to listen to him. Listen to God. To experience the true identity and purpose for your humanity so believe that christ is our solution and he's also our life it's, again it's easy to get caught up in the myth of our day the myth that pictures a world of freedom where we are what we feel and where our lives are defined by what we want for ourselves and we're taught nobody defines us no one has the right to say who we are but us we are the center of our universe The idea that we could revolve around anyone else is repulsive to us. But understand, we can't really support the weight of that. We can't support the weight of the world revolving around us. It's not our purpose. We're crushed under the weight of that. We're left longing for more and more. We're never satisfied because what happens when you put yourself at the center of the universe, the weight crushes you. You become a black hole. This this void... This ever-crushing void that cannot be filled. And that's what Christ rescued us from. That ever-crushing weight of our sinful heart and mind so that we can be what we were intended to be. Truly glorious creations that reflect the glory of God by reflecting the glory of his son. So in rescuing us from ourselves, Christ has become our life. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3:4. Christ is our life. In Philippians 1.21, he said, for to me, to live is Christ. And in Romans, Paul's explaining, he's helping us understand what he would mean by that. Our old life, again, it was a life of slavery to sin. Now, it's true, we were oblivious to that while we were slaves. But now we've come to recognize our situation. We've come to recognize our redemption from that slavery. And so we can see how we're supposed to live now. We can't just keep living as we did focused on ourselves, attempting to satisfy these fallen desires by means of a fallen intellect, something absolutely dramatic has happened to us. We died and we rose again with Christ. At our conversion, we were united with Jesus according to Romans 6. So even though we didn't experience Jesus' death exactly the way he experienced it, we really did, truly do, experience the benefits of his death. We died with Christ, so we died to sin's rule over us. Sin's power is broken because you can't rule a dead person. So we died to sin's power so that our sinful desires and intellect can no longer demand our obedience. And just as was true of our savior. We didn't stay dead. He rose with him from the grave to live a new kind of life. So what that means is when we believe in Jesus, we can say no to sin. We should never believe that that wicked habit we keep slipping back into is too powerful for, for us. The first thing, whatever we keep failing at, the first thing we need to recognize is that failure is not our only option. That impatient anger that keeps cropping up with our kids, that lust that continues to plague us, that that crushing anxiety that weighs in on us, whatever that natural tendency, that is not what defines us. We died to that anger, to that lust, to that worry. The power that it had over us, it's dead. It's still in Jesus' grave. But we're not. We died. We died. We were buried, but we rose again with Christ. So the power of the resurrection is pulsing through our veins right now. We can say no to our sin. So we, the life we live is Christ's life. A life of true freedom. And again, the problem is that our, our ideas of freedom, they've been corrupted by our sinful state. And we think freedom is being free to do whatever we want. That's just the perspective of somebody who's a slave to your wants. There is no freedom in the absolute sense for creatures. We, we grasped at that at the beginning. That's what we tried to have for ourselves. It wasn't what we thought it was. We tried to displace God. But the only way to, to experience the freedom we were made for is to submit to our creator. So we aren't free in the absolute sense. We either submit completely to our fallen heart and mind, or we submit to God. And what Christ did for us is he freed us from slavery to sin, and he transferred us over to a new loving master. So we were redeemed from serving our sin, from moving further and further away from God. We were redeemed from a path that led to our eternal condemnation, which was our, it's the payment that we deserved for serving sin. And we were rescued to serve God. To be committed to righteous behavior. To be on a path that takes us closer and closer to him. That makes us progressively more and more like him. Holy, righteous, loving. And that's not anything we earned. It's the free gift of God. A gift that was given to us on the basis of grace. That was not a payment for what we've done. So that that rescue means that we actually can obey now. We can obey. Not in our own strength. If, if we try to obey in our own strength, we're just repeating the, the error of earlier. We, we can't do what's pleasing to God in our own strength. But now we have the Holy Spirit. Paul taught us that, especially in Romans 8. And now his rule is what animates our life instead of sin's rule. So through His son, God, did what the law could never do for us, Paul says. The law wasn't designed to produce the love it required. But now we have the Spirit. God has given us His Spirit because of what His Son has done. And that Holy Spirit produces in us the love that God requires. So our lives are different now. That's what Paul explains in Romans 8. We no longer live in a a way that fits with our old situation, what Paul describes as life in the flesh, where we lived in accordance to those sinful desires and thoughts. We now live in line with the Spirit. We're no longer focusing our attention on on what the the flesh wants. Instead, we're we're focusing on what the Spirit wants for us. And we're able to actually put to death our sinful practices by the indwelling this indwelling holy spirit and not only that but we have the spirit of adoption who assures us that we are sons and daughters of god he assures us of that as he leads us in obedience and as he gives us this sense that god is our father in our prayers we have this assurance so we can face the future with this confidence this biblical hope biblical hope is that sense of certainty that god's going to do what he promised So because of the spirit of adoption, we can know that we are co-heirs with the Son. That we will share in the new covenant inheritance that was promised to the Messiah. We get to share in that. Since we have the first fruits of that inheritance with this Holy Spirit, we know that one day we will be God's people in God's place, doing his will, under his rule, rather, and knowing his blessing. That's the way that awesome cutlery sings it god's people in god's place under his rule knowing his blessing we can be confident of that and this hope though that we have this confidence we have isn't one where we we are triumphant and victorious in everything right now it's it's something that's experienced on a path of suffering suffering the effects of a fallen world just as our Savior experienced. This is our requisite path. This is the path we must be on. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 17. If we are children of God, then we are also heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so because of this incomparable glory that awaits us, we not only rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we can also rejoice in suffering So Paul says in the first part of chapter 5. We rejoice in suffering because suffering is the path to endurance. Endurance proves that we belong to Jesus. And that proof then gives us confidence. We can be certain that we will share in the glory of God. And then Paul encouraged us in hope by showing us that the triune God is at work to make sure that we endure to the end. So God the Father is right now working with God the Spirit so that everything that we experience works towards the good that he planned from all eternity, namely to be like Christ. And the risen son is doing the same thing at the father's right hand. So the spirit, Paul says, intercedes for us as he goes through, as we go through this life, he goes through this life with us. According to Romans 8, 27, the spirit is asking the father for specifically what will work toward our good of becoming more like Christ. And then the one who pioneered this path is up in heaven right now asking exactly for what we need to make it to the end. So whatever comes, whatever difficulty, whatever suffering comes our way, we can overcome it with, by faith in the triune God who loved us. So again, that means that our lives are different. They're different than the world. It's different than the way the world talks. You know, our life, our goal is not self-actualization. Our goal is Christ-actualization. Our full potential isn't achieved simply by trying to get the desires and, and plans we have for our lives. But for reaching our creator's desires for our lives. So our creator made us. He designed us. He gave us our potential. We didn't give ourselves that. Our potential fully expressed is Christ-likeness. And that's what Jesus came to bring about. Perfectly reflecting the glory of God. And right now he's given us his spirit so that we, even now, we begin progressively to be more and more like Christ. So Christ is our life. Everything in our life is directed toward being like him. So I am not enough. I, I am not enough. And, and yet, sometimes, you know, you hear Christians sound like that is still our goal. Even some Christians who want to keep the Christ in Christmas. They can't seem to keep the Christ in Christian. I, I heard it again this year that King for, for King and Country Christmas monologue. That when you listen to it is very unclear and actually ultimately unhelpful. They, they say that God now offers us redemption. And there's a lot of things in it that sound good but it's just not very clear and it actually ends very poorly god now offers us redemption a fresh start freedom so that we can hold our heads high and march through this life knowing that we are never alone that every woman and man boy and girl to all of us who feel like we have nothing left nothing to bring that we can know that god is smiling at us that he is loving us that we are enough it's just that we're not enough and, and maybe they mean something different, but in a world that says, I am enough, and means what they mean, that's not helpful. <laughs> the truth is, Christ is enough. And we shouldn't encourage self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. Just like Paul says in Philippians 4.13, where he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he didn't say that so that we could do anything, but so that we could endure anything. Whether we're brought low or abound, whether facing plenty or hunger, abundance or need, Paul says he could face it because Christ is enough. Christ was his life. Life is now all about him, not about us. And when you live like that, you're going to do so much more than keep Christ in Christmas. You're going to keep Christ in you, in your life, in everything that you face in life. And we should also add that Christ is our Lord. Christ is our solution in our life, and he's Christ Our Lord. And at this point, we want to go back to Matthew, the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, where we receive our marching orders as a church. And don't worry, this is going to be a shorter point. It's a closing point. After Matthew puts on this glorious display of the crucifixion and burial and resurrection of Christ, he closes with this this final scene, this massively important final scene where we hear about our mission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The authority that Jesus mentions here, it matches exactly what Paul, how Paul began his letter in the first chapter. He describes Jesus as God's son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. God appointed his son to his authoritative rule as Messiah when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. So Christ is our Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That's why Paul explains to the people in Rome that we are not actually defined by the Old Testament law. There were Jewish people in Paul's day who thought that should be the case. Well, this is inspired and this is from God, so we trust in Jesus and then we set ourselves under the law. But that's not the case. The Old Covenant was for the era ruled by sin. It could only reveal the truth about sin it did not have the power to produce the life it promised for obedience it, the whole of the people there were individuals within it who followed god and and were experienced his transformative work but the people as a whole they were ruled by sin and so what paul explains is that christ rescued us completely from that old covenant situation that was an era of sin's rule so we aren't under the law he says in chapter 7. In fact, God's people died to the law and were wed to Christ. We're under his direct rule to do everything he's commanded. And look at what he, he tells us to do. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, what's a disciple? In the first century, a disciple was somebody who had a relationship with a rabbi, a teacher. They were a learner. But Jesus wasn't an ordinary rabbi. He wasn't just giving his own personal take on what the law meant and how you should obey it. He was the authoritative king of God's kingdom. So unlike other rabbis, he wasn't just telling disciples the way of living that you wanted to to follow in order to make it into the kingdom someday. The first step in becoming Jesus' disciple was to learn that it was impossible for them to enter the kingdom on their own first step was to repent and believe the good news of the kingdom, that Jesus was the king of the kingdom, the Christ, the son of the living God, and that he alone could provide entrance through giving his life as a ransom. So being Jesus' disciple wasn't just this ordinary relationship with a rabbi. It involved committing yourself fully to Jesus, to have an allegiance to Jesus that was greater than any other allegiance. If you loved your father or mother or sister or brother more than Jesus, you were not worthy of him. In other words, you're not his disciple. If you put, and we could add, husband or wife, daughter or son, ahead of Jesus, you are not his disciple, Jesus is saying. He told any would-be disciple, if anyone would come after me. Meaning, if anyone would be my genuine disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Being a disciple of Jesus means recognizing, first of all, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that he demands your allegiance. He demands you to deny your allegiance to yourself, to your ambitions, to what you want for yourself, and to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And guess what happened to Jesus? He was rejected by the world. He was crucified, and he calls you to follow him wherever he leads. So being a disciple isn't just about learning a new way of life. It's not about learning even about Jesus. It's about learning Jesus. That's the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 4.20. It involves everything that Paul's been saying in Romans, where Christ is our solution in life and Lord. So, of course, if that's true, what we're talking about, Christ being our solution and life and Lord, if that's true, then his instructions to us make sense. We're to point others to our Lord so that they could perhaps hear their creator calling to them through the gospel to become what they were always meant to be. That's why we are not simply concerned with making converts or getting baptisms. We see a fuller expression of making disciples in Matthew 28. It involves Teaching them everything Christ commanded. Why? We submit fully to him so that we can be our full potential. We can be humans in God's image doing what we were made to do. Reflecting the glory of God in the face of his son by his spirit. So you know the world will look at us as though we are just like Will Ferrell's character in the Barbie movie. CEO of Mattel. Mattel trying to put Barbie back in the box. You know, we're trying to put them in a box. The truth is, our mission is the exact opposite. We're more like the toys in Toy Story. As though we have been charged with getting more Buzz Lightyear's out of their box. Getting them out of their self-delusion so that they can do what the purpose of their life was. Only we're not toys, are we? We're Christians. Little Christ's as the word implies. So let's keep the Christ in Christian this year for years to come by seeing Christ as our solution, our life, and our Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, we recognize that we are still sinners. That we have not arrived, as, as Paul says in his letter to the Philippians. We, we want to be like him and pursue this. To acknowledge that we haven't attained it yet. But that we press on. Acknowledging our sin. And, and incrementally being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Into him. Into Christ. To be like him. In righteousness love so we need to keep that in our, our thoughts we would, would never ever think of Christianity as all about some crisis moment so that we'd escape hell but pretty much get to live our life the way that we want to that we would understand the absolute surrender of faith of true and saving miraculous faith we ask that you would, would open our eyes by your good news, that you would open eyes even today. That through your spirit and through your powerful word, some may hear you calling them, turn from their sin, and trust in Jesus, and begin to experience this amazing redemption. And we pray for us that we we would recognize what we're here for. That you would you would convict us of of any superficial Christian faith. Any anything that we've been encouraged by just the current of a of a pop Christian culture or, a, or a, just a popular idea of what Christianity is that you can find so easily on the internet, that we would recognize the falseness of that shallow idea that you can have hashtag blessed and things like that that just make us feel better, but then we just go and live and do what we want. We'd recognize the call from you to be absolutely devoted to Christ our Lord, that he would be truly our life and not our ambitions, not our goals for our life, but what you want for us. And we know that we, we can't produce that. It has to be your spirit in us, but we, we want to take steps of faith, believing that you will do as you've promised. We ask for your strength in us to do what you've called us to do. Amen.